chapter twelve part two of a history of american christianity by leonard woolsey bacon this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by k hand chapter twelve part two close of the colonial era the work of muhlenberg for the lutherans stimulated the reformed churches in europe to a like work for their own scattered and pastorless sheep in both cases the fear that the work of the gospel might not be done seemed a less effective incitement to activity than the fear that it might be done by others it was the reformed church of holland rather than those of germany miserably broken down and discouraged by ravaging wars that assumed the main responsibility for this task as early as seventeen twenty eight the dutch synods had earnestly responded to the appeal of their impoverished brethren on the rhine in behalf of the sheep scattered abroad and in seventeen forty three acting through the classes of amsterdam they had made such progress toward beginning the preliminary arrangements of the work as to send the presbyterian synod of philadelphia a proposal to combine into one the presbyterian or scotch reformed the dutch reformed and the german reformed churches in america it had already proven impossible to draw together in common activity and worship the different sects of the same german race and language the effort to unite into one organization peoples of different language but of substantially the same doctrine and polity was equally futile it seemed as if minute sectarian division and subdivision was to be forced upon american christianity as a law of its church life diplomacies ended the synods of holland took up their work with real munificence large funds were raised sufficient to make every german reformed missionary in america a stipendiary of the classes of amsterdam and if these subsidies were encumbered with severe conditions of subordination to a foreign directory and if they begot an enfeebling sense of dependence these were necessary indictments of the difficult situation res dura et novitas regni the most important service which the synods of holland rendered to their american beneficiaries was to find a man who should do for them just the work which muhlenberg was already doing with great energy for the lutherans the man was michael schlatter if in any respect he was inferior to muhlenberg it was not in respect to diligent devotion to the business on which he had been sent it is much to the credit of both them that in organizing and promoting their two sharply competing sects they never failed of fraternal personal relations they worked together with one heart to keep their people apart from each other the christian instinct in a community of german christians together in one congregation for common worship was solemnly discouraged by the two apostles and the synods which they organized how could the two parties walk together when one prayed vater unser and the other unser vader but the beauty of christian unity was illustrated in such incidents as this mr schlatter and some of the reformed christians being present at a lutheran church on a communion sunday listened to the preaching of the lutheran pastor after which the reformed minister made a communion address and then the congregation was dismissed and the reformed went off to a schoolhouse to receive the lord's supper truly it was fragrant like the ointment on the beard of aaron such was the diligence of schlatter that the synod or coetus of the reformed church was instituted in seventeen forty seven a year from his arrival the lutheran synod dates from seventeen forty eight although muhlenberg was on the ground four years earlier than schlatter thus the great work of dividing the german population of america into two major sects was conscientiously and effectually performed 
seventy years later with large expenditure of persuasion authority and money it was found possible to heal in some measure in the old country the very schism which good men had been at such pains to perpetuate in the new high honor is due to the prophetic wisdom of these two leaders of german-american christianity in that they clearly recognized in advance that the english was destined to be the dominant language of north america their strenuous though unsuccessful effort to promote a system of public schools in pennsylvania was defeated through their own ill judgment and the ignorant prejudices of the immigrant people played upon by politicians but the mere attempt entitles them to lasting gratitude it is not unlikely that their divisive work of church organization may have contributed indirectly to defeat the aspirations of their fellow germans after the perpetuation of a germany in america the combination of the mass of the german population in one solid church organization would have been a formidable support to such aspirations the splitting of this mass in half necessitating petty local schisms with all their debilitating and demoralizing consequences may have helped secure the country from a serious political and social danger so then the german church in america at the close of the colonial era exists outside of the petty primeval sects in three main divisions the lutheran the reformed and the moravian there is free opportunity for christians of this language to sort themselves according to their elective affinities that american ideal of edifying harmony is well attained according to which men of partial or one-sided views of truth shall be associated exclusively in church relations with others of like precious defects muhlenberg seems to have been sensible of the nature of the division he was making in the body of christ when after severing successfully between the strict lutherans in a certain congregation and those of moravian sympathies he finds it hard to decide on which side of the controversy the greater justice lay the greater part of those on the lutheran side he feared was composed of unconverted men while the moravian party seemed open to the reproach of enthusiasm so he concluded that each sort of christian would be better off without the other time proved his diagnosis to be better than his treatment in the course of a generation the lutheran body carefully weeded of the pietistic admixtures sank perilously deep in cold rationalism and the moravian church was quite carried away for a time on a flood of sentimentalism what might have been the course of this part of church history if Mullenberg and Schlatter had shared more deeply with Zinzendorf in the spirit of apostolic and Catholic Christianity, and if all three had conspired to draw together into one the various temperaments and tendencies of the German-Americans in the unity of the spirit with the bond of peace, may seem like an idle historical conjecture, but the question is not without practical interest today perhaps the moravians would have been the better for being ballasted with the weighty theologies and the conservative temper of the state churches it is very certain that these would have gained by the infusion of something of that warmth of christian love and zeal that pervaded to a wonderful degree the whole moravian fellowship but the hand and the foot were quite agreed that they had no need of each other or of the heart by far the most momentous event of american church history in the closing period of the colonial era was the planting of the methodist episcopal church the wesleyan revival was strangely tardy in reaching this country with which it had so many points of connection it was in america in seventeen thirty seven that john wesley passed through the discipline of a humiliating experience by which his mind had been opened and that he had been brought into acquaintance with the moravians by whom he was to be taught the way of the lord more perfectly it was john wesley who sent whitfield to america from whom on his first return to england in seventeen thirty eight he learned the practice of field preaching 
it was from america that edwards's narrative of surprising conversions had come to wesley which being read by him on the walk from london to oxford opened to his mind unknown possibilities of the swift advancement of the kingdom of god the beginning of the wesleyan societies in england followed in close connection upon the first awakening in america it went on with growing momentum in england and ireland for quarter of a century until in seventeen sixty five it numbered thirty-nine circuits served by ninety-two itinerant preachers and its work was mainly among the classes from which the emigration to the colonies was drawn it is not easy to explain how it came to pass that through all these twenty-five years wesleyan methodism gave no sound or sign of life on that continent on which it was destined if one may speak of predestination in this connection to grow to its most magnificent proportions at last in seventeen sixty six in a little group of methodist families that had found one another out among the recent comers in new york philip embury who in his native ireland long before had been a recognized local preacher was induced by the persuasions and reproaches of a pious woman to take his not inconsiderable talent from the napkin in which he had kept it hidden for six years and preach in his own house to as many as could be brought in to listen to him the few that were there formed themselves into a class and promised to attend at future meetings a more untoward time for the setting on foot of a religious enterprise could hardly have been chosen it was a time of prevailing languor in the churches in the reaction from the great awakening it was also a time of intense political agitation the year before the stamp act had been passed and the whole chain of colonies from new hampshire to georgia had been stirred up to resist the execution of it this year the stamp act had been repealed but in such terms as to imply a new menace and redoubled the agitation from this time forward to the outbreak of war in seventeen seventy five and from that year on till the conclusion of peace in seventeen eighty three the land was never at rest from turmoil through it all the methodist societies grew and multiplied in seventeen sixty seven embury's house had overflowed and a sail loft was hired for the growing congregation in seventeen sixty eight a lot on john street was secured and a meeting-house was built the work had spread to philadelphia and self-planted in maryland under the preaching of robert strawbridge was propagating itself rapidly in that peculiarly congenial soil in seventeen sixty nine in response to earnest entreaties from america two of wesley's itinerant preachers boardman and pilmore arrived with his commission to organize an american itinerancy and two years later in seventeen seventy one arrived francis asbury who by virtue of his preeminent qualifications for organization administration and command soon became practically the director of the american work a function to which in seventeen seventy two he was officially appointed by commission from wesley very great is the debt that american christianity owes to francis asbury it may reasonably be doubted whether any one man from the founding of the church in america until now has achieved so much in the visible and traceable results of his work it is very certain that wesley himself with his despotic temper and his high church and tory principles could not have carried the methodist movement in the new world onward through the perils of its infancy on the way to so eminent a success as that which was prepared by his vice-regent fully possessed of the principles of that autocratic discipline ordained by wesley he knew how to use it as not abusing it being aware that such a discipline can continue to subsist in the long run only by studying the temper of the subjects of it and making sure of obedience to orders by making sure that the orders are agreeable on the whole to the subjects more than one polity theoretical aristocratic or monarchic 
in the atmosphere of our republic has grown into a practically popular government simply through tact and good judgment in the administration of it without changing a syllable of its constitution very early in the history of the methodist church it is easy to recognize the aptitude with which asbury naturalizes himself in the new climate nominally he holds an absolute autocracy over the young organization whatever the subject at issue on hearing every preacher for and against the right of determination was to rest with him questions of the utmost difficulty and of vital importance arose in the first years of the american itinerancy they could not have been decided so wisely for the country and the universal church if asbury seeming to govern the ministry and membership of the society had not studied to be governed by them in spite of the sturdy dictum of wesley we are not republican and do not intend to be the salutary and necessary change had already begun which was to accommodate his institutes in practice and eventually in form to the habits and requirements of a free people the center of gravity of the methodist society beginning at new york moved rapidly southward boston had been the metropolis of the congregationalist churches new york of the episcopalians philadelphia of the quakers and the presbyterians and baltimore the latest and southernmost of the large colonial cities became for a time the headquarters of methodism accessions to the society in that region were more in number and stronger in wealth and social influence than in more northern communities it was at baltimore that asbury fixed his residence so far as a methodist bishop ranging the country with incessant and untiring diligence could be said to have a fixed residence the record of the successive annual conferences of the methodists gives a gauge of their increase at the first in seventeen seventy three at philadelphia there were reported eleven hundred sixty members and ten preachers not one of these a native of america at the second annual conference in philadelphia there were reported two thousand seventy three members and seventeen preachers the third annual conference sat at philadelphia in seventeen seventy five simultaneously with the continental congress it was the beginning of the war there were reported three thousand one hundred forty eight members some of the foremost preachers had gone back to england unable to carry on their work without being compelled to compromise their royalist principles the preachers reporting were nineteen of the membership nearly twenty five hundred were south of philadelphia about eighty per cent at the fourth and annual conference at baltimore in seventeen seventy six were reported four thousand nine hundred twenty one members and twenty four preachers at the fifth annual conference in hartford county maryland were reported six thousand nine hundred sixty eight members and thirty six preachers this was in the thick of the war more of the leading preachers sympathizing with the royal cause were going home to england the methodists as a body were subject to not unreasonable suspicion of being disaffected to the cause of independence their preachers were principally englishmen with british sympathies the whole order was dominated and its property controlled by an offensively outspoken tory of the dr johnson type it was natural enough that in their public work they should be liable to annoyance mom violence and a military arrest even asbury a man of proved american sympathies found it necessary to retire for a time from public activity in these circumstances it is no wonder that at the conference of seventeen seventy eight at leesburg virginia at which five circuits in the most disturbed regions were unrepresented there was a decline in numbers the members were fewer by eight hundred seventy three the preachers fewer by seven but it is really wonderful that the next year seventeen seventy nine were reported extensive revivals in all parts not directly affected by the war and an increase of two thousand four hundred eighty two members and forty nine preachers 
the distribution of the membership was very remarkable at this time and for many years after there was no organized methodism in new england new york being occupied by the invading army sent no report of the total reported membership of eight thousand five hundred seventy seven one hundred forty are credited to new jersey one hundred seventy nine to pennsylvania seven hundred ninety five to delaware and nine hundred to maryland nearly all the remainder about eighty per cent of the whole was included in virginia and north carolina with the exception of three hundred nineteen persons the entire reported membership of the methodist societies lived south of mason and dixon's line the fact throws an honorable light on some incidents of the early history of this great order of preachers in the sixteen years from the meeting in philip embury's house to the end of the war of independence the membership of the methodist societies grew to about twelve thousand served by about seventy itinerant preachers it was a very vital and active membership including a large number of local preachers and exhorters the societies and classes were effectively organized and officered for aggressive work and they were planted for the most part in the regions most destitute of christian institutions parallel with the course of the gospel we trace in every period the course of those anti-christian influences with which the gospel is in conflict the system of slavery must continue through many sorrowful years to be in view from the line of our studies we shall know it by the unceasing protest made against it in the name of the lord the arguments of john woolman and anthony benezet were sustained by the yearly meetings of the friends at newport the chief centre of the african slave trade the two congregational pastors samuel hopkins and the theologian and erudite ezra stiles afterward president of yale college mutually opposed in theology and contrasted at every point of natural character were at one in boldly opposing the business by which their parishioners had been enriched the deepening of the conflict for political liberty pointed the application of the golden rule in the case of the slaves the anti-slavery literature of the period includes a printed sermon that had been preached by the distinguished dr levi hart to the corporation of freedmen of his native town of farmington connecticut at their autumnal town meeting in seventeen seventy four and the poem on slavery published in seventeen seventy five by that fine character aaron cleveland of norwich hatter poet legislator and minister of the gospel among the presbyterians of new jersey the father of dr ashbel green took the extreme ground which was taken by dr hopkins church in seventeen eighty four that no person holding a slave should be permitted to remain in the communion of the church in seventeen seventy four the first society in the world for the abolition of slavery was organized among the friends in pennsylvania to be followed by others making a continuous series of abolition societies from new england to maryland and virginia but the great anti-slavery society of the period in question was the methodist society laboring through the war of independence mainly in the southern states it publicly declared in the conference of seventeen eighty that slavery is contrary to the laws of god man and nature and hurtful to society contrary to the dictates of conscience and pure religion and doing that which we would not that others should do to us and ours the discipline of the body of itinerants was conducted rigorously in accordance with this declaration it must not be supposed that the instances here cited represent exceptions to the general course of opinion in the church of those times they are simply expressions of the universal judgment of those whose attention had been seriously fixed upon the subject there appears no evidence of the existence of a contrary sentiment the first beginnings of a party in the church in opposition to the common judgment of the christian conscience on the subject of slavery are to be referred to a comparatively very recent date 
another of the great conflicts of the modern church was impending but it was only to prophetic minds in the middle of the eighteenth century that it was visible in the greatness of its proportions the vice of drunkenness which isaiah had denounced in samaria and paul had denounced at ephesus was growing insensibly since the introduction of distilled liquors as a common beverage to a fatal prevalence the trustees of the charitable colony of georgia consciously laying the foundations of many generations endeavored to provide for the welfare of the nascent state by forbidding at once the importation of negro slaves and of spirituous liquors but the salutary interdict was soon nullified in the interest of the crops and of the trade with the indians dr hopkins inculcated at a very early day the duty of entire abstinence from intoxicating liquids as a beverage but as in the conflict with slavery so in this conflict the priority of leadership belongs easily to wesley and his itinerants the conference of seventeen eighty three declared against permitting the converts to make spirituous liquors sell and drink them in drams as wrong in its nature and consequences to this course they were committed long in advance by the general rules set forth by the two wesleys in may seventeen forty three for the guidance of the united societies an incident of the times immediately preceding the war of independence requires to be noted in this place not as being of great importance itself but as characteristic of the condition of the country and prophetic of changes that were about to take place during the decade from seventeen sixty to seventeen seventy five the national body of the presbyterians the now reunited synod of new york and philadelphia and the general association of the congregational pastors of connecticut met together by the representatives in annual convention to take counsel over a grave peril that seemed to be impending a petition had been urgently pressed in behalf of the american episcopalians for the establishment of bishops in the colonies under the authority of the church of england the reasons for this measure were obvious and weighty and the protestations of those who promoted it that they sought no advantage before the law over their fellow christians were doubtless sincere nevertheless the fear that the bringing in of church of england bishops would involve the bringing in of many of those mischiefs of the english church establishment which neither they nor their fathers had been able to bear was a perfectly reasonable fear both to the puritans of new england and to the presbyterians from ireland it was difficult for these and it would have been even more difficult for the new dignitaries in colonial days to understand how bishops could be anything but lord bishops the fear of such results was not confined to ecclesiastics the movement was felt by the colonial statesmen to be dangerously akin to the other british encroachments on colonial rights the massachusetts assembly instructed its agent in london strenuously to oppose it in virginia the episcopalian clergy themselves at first refused to concur in the petition for bishops and when at last the concurrence was voted it was in the face of a formal protest of four of the clergy for which they received a vote of thanks from the house of burgesses the alliance thus occasioned between the national synod of the presbyterian church and the congregationalist clergy of the little colony of connecticut seems like a disproportioned one and so it was indeed for the connecticut general association was by far the larger and stronger body of the two by and by the disproportion was inverted and the alliance continued with notable results End of chapter twelve part two